For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. It's in your order of worship. The passage is there. If you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table. I want you to grab one on your way out, or you can grab one right now. Either way is fine. Uh, just good to have the scriptures in front of you as, as we go through them this morning. As I said this morning, uh, like as we got started, as we kicked it off, that um, we've called the series Freedom, which is strange because most, uh, my guess would be most folks in our culture would not understand Christianity as a message of freedom, but instead a message of slavery, right? I mean, for most, Christianity is a straitjacket. It's not something that sets you free. It's something that somehow ruins your fun. It spoils your... Sunday, it it does what it does. But we're calling this series in Galatians Freedom because of the belief that Christianity actually does free us. It, it, It frees us from the need to make ourselves right. It frees us from the bondage to create and maintain an identity. And it frees us from the feelings of and the reality of our guilt. And this morning we come to an important question and probably an even more important event in the history of Christianity and the history of the church. Because an important question is asked, is there anything that we need to add to the finished work of Jesus to be right before God? What if those things that we want to add are good things? What if they're very religious things? What, What if they're things that are culturally very dear to us? Is it okay to add them? What we will find this morning in this passage is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So if you have your place in Galatians 2, if you'd stand, as is our habit in honor of God's word, we'll be reading the first 10 verses of Galatians 2. Let's be mindful, this is God's very word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with us, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, and they did the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word, given so that we might flourish. Please pray with me. 
God, as we come now at your behest, you have called us into this place. You are present because your word is present, because your spirit is present, because you, God, have relationally called us here to worship. And so, Lord, we ask that you would preach to us, that you would speak to us. Use the falling words of a fallen man in ways that we can't even fathom. Open our hearts, open our ears, and soften us to your gospel. Lord Jesus, preach. You alone hold the words of eternal life, and so we are eager to hear from you, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Preachers have a bit of a penchant for exaggeration, right? I mean, I think that's true of everyone who speaks publicly, uh, but since we do it weekly, we have more opportunities to, to exaggerate, so we're kind of fluent in the language of exaggeration. That being said, a great argument could be made that this event that this passage talks about is one of, if not the most, the important event in the history of the early Christian movement. How's that for exaggeration, right? I think it's true. Because here is ultimately the first test of the gospel. As it moves out beyond those that are culturally Jewish, religiously Jewish, uh, will it be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that is seen as the beginning and the end of faith, or will it be Jesus plus something else? Paul forces the issue. What do we do with those who are not culturally Jewish? What will we do with those who are not religiously Jewish? Well, Will they be seen as fully right with God through, through faith in Jesus alone, or will they need to also become Jewish? Praise God that he preserved his church that day, so that, as Paul says, the truth of the gospel might be for us. So this morning, if you're following in the outline, we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at the test of the message, then we're going to look at the test of the messenger, and then finally we're going to test our own message. Okay? If that outline's helpful, go ahead and take it out. If not, don't worry about it. And as we get into the test of the message and the line in the sand, let's remember where we've come from, right? Some of y'all have been here the last three weeks. We started this book of, of Galatians uh, the first weekend in September. So here we are. Um, Paul is defending both the message that he preached about Jesus and his own authority or, or his own uh, position as the messenger. You'll remember he planted some churches in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, and as he left those, other teachers came in, and they, they began teaching, like, yeah, yeah, Paul, okay, well, look, this Paul guy, we're not even sure who he is. He certainly didn't come from the apostles in Jerusalem, and so he just, maybe, you know what, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He was just incomplete in his message. Jesus is great, you need to follow Jesus, but you do realize you also need to become Jewish. This is what they were saying. And so, and so Paul is defending the message that he preached, what he calls his gospel, as well as his own authority to preach it. And so last week we heard him say that Paul was the least likely messenger, the least likely uh, uh, missionary that could ever be. Because he went from, from being a violent, racist persecutor of Christians to a fervent missionary. And he did that because of an encounter with Jesus, right? And I mean, that's, that's kind of what happens. When we have an encounter with Jesus, we come to know him and then we go to show him. And that's what, that's what Paul is doing. And so Paul received both his message and his mission from Jesus and wasn't commissioned by any of those who were apostles before him. Now, he was also quick to say that that's not to say that he didn't have contact with them. He, he met Peter. He hung out with Peter, who was kind of the foremost of the apostles of, of Jesus, foremost of his disciples. He, he spent some time with Peter, and he spent some time with the Lord's brother, James. Um, 
But now we hear of another event that furthers Paul's argument, that his message is consonant with theirs, even if they received them separately from Jesus. So look down at verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking along Titus, and I went up according to a revelation. All right, stop there. So, from last week to this week, we have now jumped ahead 14 years. 14 years later from when Paul first went to Jerusalem, which was like three years after he had actually come to know Jesus in the first place, now Paul is coming back to Jerusalem uh, with two people. So Paul and Barnabas, the other guy that he, one of the other guys he mentioned, Barnabas were, and Paul were both leaders in the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was a, a very culturally and racially diverse church in, in, in the first century um, and had a mixture of lots of different kinds of people, people from Africa, people from, from uh, the Greco-Roman kind of world, people who were more um, Eastern, Near Eastern, things like that. But Barnabas was ethnically Jewish. He was a Levite. And so Barnabas was well known to the Jerusalem apostles. We actually know that Barnabas spent time there first. He, he began his time as a Christian in Jerusalem and then was sent to Antioch. Titus, however, Titus is Greek. Now he's a protege of Paul's and an eventual church planter, but he is a Greek, which would have been evident, or at least it could have been evident if he chose to allow them to see that he was Greek. Uh, it, w- it would have been very evident to everyone. I don't know if he did that. I'm kind of hoping he didn't. But the point is, is, is there, were, there were certain things among males that distinguished Jew from Greek, Jew from everybody else, right? And Titus didn't have such a marker on him. Now, we're going to learn why Paul brought Titus in a second, but it's important for us to understand that Titus had no Jewish background. This was not like Paul's other protege. Paul had another protege. His name was Timothy. Timothy's mama was Jewish. Jewish world, if your mama's Jewish, you're Jewish. Like, that's the way it worked. And so, Timothy was understood to be Jewish. Titus? Eh, he's a Greek. But secondly, Paul says he went up because of a revelation. Now, he doesn't tell us what that is. Luckily, Luke does in in the book of Acts. In Acts 11, verses 27 to 30, he tells us what the revelation is. It's not a revelation of bad theology. Okay, It's not a revelation of somebody got their message wrong and we need to go straighten them out. The the revelation was because there was a famine coming. In uh, in what is now Israel, there was was a famine that was coming. You know, no food. And so Paul is going with Barnabas and Titus to bring money, an offering, from the church in Antioch, from the Greek Gentile church, down to Jerusalem to, uh, to help support them in their famine. This is a famine relief visit is what this is. And so Paul continues. I laid before them the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles, privately to those of reputation, lest somehow I was running or had run in vain. All right. Now, stick with me, because this is really important, and it's very easily misunderstood. Paul came to Jerusalem to bring money. That's why he came. But while he was there, he decided, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the apostles, the, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem together, and I'm going to let them consider the content of my message. I'm going to have them consider the content of my message. Now, the word we, we translate laid before them literally means presenting for consideration. I want you to judge, he's saying. Now, here's the thing. Paul is taking aside the apostles. That's, that's who he means by those of reputation. He's taking them aside privately to have them consider the content of his message. Why is he doing that? Because the first thing that jumps into our head is that maybe, especially when he says that thing about maybe I was running or had run in vain, that maybe he thinks he's wrong. Listen. He's been preaching this message for 14 years. 
I'm pretty sure if he thought he might be wrong, he would have visited earlier to get the things straightened out. His, his point in coming here is not to see, when he says whether I, ha- I was running or had run in vain, it's not to see maybe I'm, maybe I'm preaching the wrong thing. Maybe I have, I have things not quite right. Uh, listen, here's what we know. Paul, before he became become a Christian, was, was uh, not just Jewish, but he was a Pharisee. Okay? He believed that uh, a bunch of things. We don't have time to get into every one of it. But he believed that what made him pleasing to God was that he kept the law. And as a matter of fact, he says that he was extremely zealous for the, those traditions, which we learned wasn't just about he was really good at it, but he violently was willing to, he was willing to use violence to see that other people did it. Okay? He was big on keeping the law. In other words, he was religious. Now, Paul wouldn't have said he's perfect. No religious person thinks they're perfect. I'm sure he offered sacrifice. That's what good Jews during the time did. They offered sacrifice. But that doesn't change the fact that he believed that his religious observance, his morality, his devotion is what made him pleasing to God. Before we get too hard on him, that's not unlike some of us here, right? Because some of us here this morning, we think that what, what really makes God happy, and yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, but but I mean, I, I go to church. I'm here, right? Hey, at least I'm here. Or, uh, you know, we, we keep our noses clean or we, we try to live right. I try to live right. God likes me because of that. But here's the thing. Paul met Jesus. And what was revealed to him when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was that his morality, his religiosity, his seeking to make himself right before God, to earn his place with God, was just as sinful as those immoral Gentiles and those irreligious nominal Jews that he hated. Paul saw that he was just as lost in being religious as, as those others were who were notorious. Paul needed a rescuer. Just as much as others, even though his life looked cleaner. And so he placed his faith in Jesus and saw that it was Jesus. It was Jesus alone that made him right before God. And so through faith, Paul was united to Jesus. He was united to Christ, which meant that Christ's death for sin was counted as death for, as Paul's death for sin. And Jesus' perfect righteous life was counted as Paul's perfect righteous life. And and it was a, it was a great exchange. He was able to exchange his Life for the life of Jesus. And this means that if Jesus alone could save Paul through that kind of method, then Jesus alone could save anybody. He could save anybody. And so, here's the thing. That's what he took to the Gentiles. Paul had no doubt about that. He is not presenting the gospel to the apostles so that they can check up on him. He's presenting his gospel to the apostles to check on them. He's presenting his gospel to the apostles to see if they've got it right, because if they don't, his mission and their mission are two separate missions. And he knows they're not supposed to be. If, if the apostles come to him and, they, and he lays before them their message, they say, yeah, that's great, but what about these markers? What about eating the right stuff? Because right, we're not supposed to eat unclean foods. Or what about hanging out with the right kinds of people, like Titus? Uh then he would have to say, I'm sorry, I, the gospel that Jesus gave me is over here and I will not compromise on that. That is what Paul is saying. And that, friends, is why he brought Titus. Titus is the test case. It's fine to say things with your words, yada, yada, yak, yak, but what are you going to do when the dude walks through the room? 
You know, it's, it's fine to say, I believe that we are all made right with God through Jesus and through Jesus alone when you're all talking to people who look like you, act like you, and believe the same things you do. But what happens when the Greek comes through the room and says, hey guys, ready to hang out? I don't really know what we do here, but I'm ready to, okay. Like, he comes in, and what are they going to do with him? And Paul says that even though Titus was a Greek, he was not compelled. They agreed that you needn't add anything to the work of Jesus. Not religious symbols, not rituals, not law-keeping. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is enough to save. But it wasn't over. Look down at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, False brothers who sneaked in to spy out the freedom they had in Christ tried to bring them into bondage, uh, but they hadn't yielded to them for an instant, for a moment. Here's what this means. Most likely outside of this private gathering, because remember, Paul's meeting with these folks privately, but outside of that gathering, there was probably some pressure from some to, to see Titus circumcised. And if all this language of circumcision freaks you out, like, trust me, you're not alone. But here, here's, here's why that's a big deal. In the Jewish world, that is the main boundary marker. Abraham received that sign and all of his family from then on out were to receive that sign. And up to the moment of, of Jesus coming and his life, death, and resurrection, that was kind of a symbol that said you're in. Okay? And so there's pressure to see Titus, this Greek, have this sign applied to them. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, yeah, 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 we get it, Jesus. But, yeah, you still have to do the right things. I get Jesus and Jesus alone, but you still gotta, still gotta do the right things. You still gotta, be, you still gotta eat the right, you still gotta be around the right kinds of people. And so I'm glad that he's come to follow Israel's God. You do know he has to become Israel, right? You gotta be like us. Now, here's the thing. Paul is very clear. He doesn't call these dudes, like, Christians who just had their theology a little wrong. He doesn't say these dudes are just, they're just a little mistaken. He calls them false brothers. False. Not in. They snuck in, but they shouldn't have been there. Paul is saying, if you think you need Jesus and morality... Jesus and church attendance. Jesus and tolerance. Jesus and abstaining from alcohol. Jesus and baptism. Jesus and missional living. Uh, Jesus and uh, confessing to the priest. Jesus and wearing the right clothes. Jesus and raising your kids in the right way. Paul says you aren't a Christian in the weeds. You just aren't a Christian. You are a false brother. And so Paul says, we did not yield to them for an instant. He is saying, the gospel which has come to you, Galatians, I defended, along with the other apostles, against the kinds of people who are trying to confuse you now. It's not me who has things messed up. It's them. So that's Paul's defense of his message. But he was under attack as well. And so how did the apostles treat him? Look down at verses 6 to 8 as we look at the source and the context. Paul says, look, those who seem to be important to others... Which he keeps saying over and over, like, look, I don't, they ain't ain't important to me. You all may think they're important, but eh, God doesn't care. Okay, so those who are important to others, they added nothing to me, but instead they saw that I was given a mission to the Gentiles just as Peter was to the Jews. All right, check back in, because this is equally important. Um, Paul understood that he was uniquely called to bring the gospel to the world. Right? Peter, those guys, they are called to bring the gospel to the, the lost sheep of Israel. Paul... 
was uniquely called to take the gospel to the world. And as soon as I say that, uh, many of us in this room kind of will uh, shudder a little bit. Because you know that when he, we say take the gospel to the world, it's not just to announce something and to say, you know, just, hey, just so you know, Jesus reigns. Like, he's seeking conversion. Right? He's seeking to convert other people. And some of us really hate that idea. I mean, many of us don't in here. But, but some of us are, like, really offended by that. Like, why do Christians always have to talk about conversion? Can't they just believe what they believe and not have to convert other people? Like, I get that. I get that. On the one hand, I, I, this deserves a far bigger answer. But just on, as a sidebar, on the one hand, I would simply say, like, look, all of us try to convert others. Even you thinking, like, Rick, why can't you stop converting people is trying to convert me to your perspective so that I'll stop converting others. Like, you want, you're, you're trying to convert me just as much as I'm trying to convert you. But this particular issue goes deeper because, you see, the work of Jesus was never meant for just one people group. It was never meant for just one little subsection of the population of the planet. Jesus came to seek and save all sorts of people in all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of besetting issues in all sorts of contexts. I don't know why we are so quick to forget this. Do you really? Christianity did not spawn in Western Europe. Christianity did not begin amongst people who look like this. It started amongst people who look very different from us. So praise God that Jesus didn't just come for one subsection of the population of the planet. We would all be stuck, lost, probably still worshiping trees and slaughtering one another. Like... Jesus, what we are talking about here is contexts, okay? The apostles are acknowledging that Paul's ministry is going to look a lot different than Peter's. That his ministry will look a lot different than theirs. However, it is the same ministry. Did you see that? Paul says that they acknowledge that the same one who worked in Peter's apostleship, that word in the original literally means to energize. The one who gave energy to Peter's apostleship, the one who motivated and moved it out, is the same one who energized Paul's, the same one who moved his out. It is one mission. However, it, would, it is going to look very different. See, Christianity isn't bound to a culture. It's one of the things that makes it unique. It's not bound to a culture with all these cultural trappings. I know we think it is, but actual biblical Christianity is not. It transcends culture, which means that it both, it both sees all cultures and acknowledges the beauty that's present in all of them and also critiques them according to the brokenness that's in all of them. All of them, including ours, which we think for some reason is, but isn't it just right? No. No, okay? It critiques all of them. This is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 22, he says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who weren't under the law, I became like one who wasn't under the law, so that I may win those who were not under the law. And then he says later, I became all things to all men, so that it is in all possible ways I might save some. The methods can change. The trappings can change, but the gospel never changes. It is the same mission with different contexts. And that's driven home in the last couple of verses. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Understanding the grace that's given to me, James, Peter, and John, those who seem to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. All right. Several points in here that are a little strange. Um, Here's what this is. Look, Jesus had 12 apostles. Okay, it didn't go so well for one of them. His name was Judas. Betrayed Jesus. Things didn't go good. Committed suicide. Guts spilled out. It's tragic. Uh, but, but within that group, within that group of 12, Jesus had three that were like his, these were his boys. These were his buddies. Their names were Peter, James, and John. They went everywhere with him. 
Okay? Now, the original James that was in that group, he's already dead. Unfortunately, Herod, King Herod got to him. He's already dead at this point. But the Lord's brother, also named James, confusing, I know, but the Lord's brother moved into that spot. They were, these were the prime leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Okay? And so when, when they give to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which is different than like the right hand to the jaw. Like it's a little different. Like it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign of solidarity. It means we are on the same team. We are, we are partners. We are family. So when these guys gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, it is a visible indicator that they all preached the same gospel. They all served the same Lord and that their respective missions were united. That was Paul's entire point in letting them consider his gospel. Are we going to be one church in a couple of different contexts? Or is this where we part ways? And so when they say, remember the poor, this is a further part of this, right? Because they're about to get hit with a famine. <laughs> and so they're like, look, man, if we're family, let's, let's all remember we're family, right? So when it gets a little, when the heat gets turned up here, you know, might want to send some money our way. And Paul's like, of course. Of course this works both ways. That's the way this works. We're family. Okay? So that's that event. Now, I want to drive this home this morning by testing our message. We called this, this sermon this morning the, the, one of the challenges to freedom. Uh, next week, we have another challenge to freedom, and that's racism. But this week, the challenge to freedom is legalism. Okay? Now, I need to define that term. Because some of us in this room have never heard the term legalism, and others of us are just confused over what it means. Okay? So here's what legalism is not. Legalism is not acknowledging that God says some things are good and some things are bad. That is not legalism, that is the truth. Saying that someone's behavior is not in line with the gospel, or someone's behavior is not in line with scripture, is not legalistic. It is the truth. Okay? What legalism is, is thinking that your right morality, your right behavior, or your right theology makes God happy with you. Or, because that, that, that's what I would call a hard legalism, right? And many of us in this room, maybe, maybe you struggle with that, but I would guess the majority of us don't struggle with that. We got Jesus. However, it also is thinking that your right morality, right activity, right theology makes God more happy with you. More happy with you than, say, others. It is practically saying, Jesus' work is good, but God likes me more than he likes you because I do the right things. Or, on the flip side, it's Jesus' work is good, but God doesn't really like me as much because of what I'm not doing. Or what I did on the way to church this morning. Or Jesus isn't really pleased with me because what do I looked at on the internet last night. You with me? That is legalism. Listen to me really close. The Christian gospel is not go be good. And the Christian gospel is not believe in Jesus and go be good. The Christian gospel is that you and I are hopelessly broken. But that Jesus came to die for all of our sins. All of them. Those in the past. Those in the present. And those yet to come, those that we have not yet done, died for them, gone. In other words, God doesn't just overlook a few of our wrongs. 
The scriptures say that he removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. Metaphorically, like, obviously, like, how does that work out? Like, it's a metaphor. But it means you can't get any further apart. Not just kind of, God's kind of going, yeah, yeah, I'll just overlook. No, they're gone. When we trust in Jesus, all of our sins are removed from them. Uh, from us. All of them. And he's thinking, but Rick, what if I, what if I mess up? Paid for. But, but Rick, what if, paid for. <laughs> it's been dealt with. And, and I know that as, we, as I talk about this, some of us are thinking like, but Rick, don't I have to go to church and, and be baptized and serve and give money? Listen to me. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Actually, they weren't thieves. They were terrorists. We call them thieves. That's a bad translation. They were, in our world, terrorists, okay? Violent people trying to kill Romans to get them out of the land, okay? He's, he's crucified between two of them, and, and, the narr- and the Gospels tell us that they started hurling insults at them. One of them continued to, and the other one came to his senses. He comes to his senses, and he's like, what are we doing? This guy. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said... Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't do anything except hang there and asphyxiate. That is what he did. He he didn't have time to take a theology class, get all of his doctrines straight. I don't know what he knew. I have no idea what he understood. Here's the only thing I know he understood. I need rescue. That dude's the rescuer. I'm going to hitch my wagon to him. And Jesus said, you're with me. I got you. I got you. Now, as soon as I start talking about this, right, I start talking about, we, we call this free grace. The free gospel, the gospel of God's free grace, right? As soon as I start talking about this, some of us in the room, whether we grew up in really kind of rigid church traditions or whether we're just not really sure what to think about all this, we're thinking, well, then what keeps you from just going and doing anything you want? Look, if God's already, if Jesus already paid for it, then I get a free pass. I can do whatever, right? Here's what keeps you from doing anything you want. Love. If it is fear that motivates you to to obey, I must obey because if I don't, God's going to get me or God's going to be displeased with me. You do not understand the gospel. But if what motivates you is love because you understand that though completely There was nothing that should have endeared God to you. That we were all, that you were broken and in desperate need of help and nothing was going to save you, but God chose to do so out of his love for you, then you will do anything to follow him. What we are talking about ultimately is the Christian doctrine of justification. Okay, now I'm going to get, get, let me get to that in a second. But as we're talking about this, we have to understand that when we, when we begin the calculus, if we have an, an equation that says Jesus plus anything, what we end up getting is nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything to us. Some of you don't believe me. Listen. If you believe that Jesus plus your obedience saves you, right? If you believe in Jesus and your obedience, but then there's this other dude. Let's call him Rick. 
He believes in Jesus too, but he can't obey like you. Because I can't. Okay? If at the end of the day, you're saved and I'm not, but we both believed in Jesus, what saved you was not Jesus, it was you. You saved you. Because your obedience was better than my obedience. And so you saved you, not Jesus. Like I said, this is the Christian doctrine of justification. It is that through faith in Jesus alone, our sin is fully paid for by Christ. And we are clothed in His righteousness. His obedience. That doesn't mean it's infused in us like we're perfect now. We're clothed with it. So when God looks at us, what He sees is not all of our failures. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You can't add to that. Any takers? You want to try? I I definitely got this better than Jesus. I can try this one, right? No. You can't add to that. One of the pastors in our denomination, Randy Pope, says it this way, that we lost it all. But that Jesus gained it all and paid it all so that he could give it all to us. Seeking to get God's smile through anything else, through anything other than Jesus alone, isn't Christianity. It is legalism. But, that's not the only kind of legalism. That's doctrinal legalism. Now let's talk a little bit about contextual legalism. Probably more more prevalent in, in our circles, okay? Here's what I mean by this. Many of us have grown up in churches that will at least pay lip service to what I just said, but will then say, you can't be a Christian and... Worship with drums or with an organ, right? Or you can't worship or or you can't hang out. If you're a Christian, you can't hang out in bars. Or you can't be a Christian and not hang out in bars. You, You can't be a Christian and live in certain neighborhoods or not live in certain neighborhoods. You you can't be a Christian and hang out with really broken people. Or, you can't be a Christian and not hang out with really broken people. You hear what I'm saying? We begin to attach a kind of righteousness to our practice, our worship, our evangelism, the people group we are called to, our passion for church planting, or the particular distinctives of our theological tribe. Listen to me. If we believe that everyone needs the gospel... And that the gospel is not come worship like me, come do evangelism like me, or come live where I live, but come follow my Savior. Then the rest of that is of lesser importance. I didn't say if it's of no importance. I said it's of lesser importance. Right? I have, uh, I've planted a church in Stanton, right? It, it, full of hipsters, recovering moralists, and, and folks from the hood. Like, th- that's, that's who we got. I have a friend who is a pastor of a church in a straight-laced small city in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. Our ministries look incredibly different. You couldn't get much different. But we preach the same gospel. It is the same mission. All the other stuff is literally just a method to best communicate the gospel and reach those who haven't heard it. Listen, I found this out this week. This blew my mind. Do you realize there's this thing called cowboy church? Did you know this? It's called Cowboy Church. It's big in Texas, of course, but they even have one here. They have a couple of them here. It's called Cowboy Church. 
And they teach something. They don't just worship. They teach something called the cowboy way. What is the cowboy way? Like, what what is that? I I don't know. Listen to me. I don't care. If they preach the gospel to folks in cowboy boots and Stetsons, like, and those folks aren't going to come in here, then praise God for them. Because they are going to reach someone that we can't. And we can join hands in doing that. We need to learn, friends, to cling tightly to Jesus. To cling tightly to Jesus' gospel and to cling lightly to our methods. Do you hear me? We need to cling tightly to Jesus' gospel and lightly to our methods. We need to learn how to become all things to all men so that in all possible means we might save some. Where we live or who we hang out with or how we worship does not make God love us. God has loved us in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have rescued us from our sin. That you are more than enough for us. So we come and and everyone in this room, Lord, everyone in this room bears the need to hear the fact that the gospel to us is free. We need to hear it because everything for some reason in our hearts wants to add to it. We struggle with the fact, Lord, that you have given us a righteousness. We struggle with the fact that you have given us an identity. We fear that that's not enough and we need more. And so we want to add to that. God, thank you that you have given it because nothing we do can can merit anything before you. So I pray, Lord, for my friends here, whether uh, whether they've never trusted in Christ, I pray that you would help them receive the free grace of God right now. And Lord, for those of us who have, would you help us to receive the free grace of God right now and to leave behind all of the things that we cling to, our, our distinctives, and to know that it is only Christ who saves us. Thank you, Lord, that 2,000 years ago, this interaction happened, this meeting, this battle for the gospel so that the gospel might be for us. And we pray that you would keep us fighting this battle so the gospel might be for others who do not yet know you, but will by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.